Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Welcome, everyone. My name is Bud Bobber. I'm a lawyer at Ogletree Deacons. I work out of our Milwaukee, Wisconsin office, and I'm joined for this podcast by two of my favorite colleagues. First is Jen Betts, a lawyer in our Pittsburgh office. Jen, good morning. Good morning, Bud. Nice to be with you. And you too. And uh, secondly, we have Jim McGrew, who is our chief client services officer and works out of our New Orleans office. Jim, how are you doing? Doing great, bud. Thank you, nice to be here. I think we should tell our listeners in all fairness, we just got done making our presentation at the Ogletree Deacons 2023 Workplace Strategies meeting here in San Diego. And our topic was to provide feedback to our uh, audience on the results of the 2023 benchmarking survey that our firm conducted. Basically, what we want to do in this podcast is uh, just give you a short bit of information about the survey itself, but then we're going to dive into what were the key findings and some of our takeaways on those findings. We recognize that as trusted advisors to so many different clients and so many different industries, we are uniquely positioned to be a hub of information about employee relations, employment law compliance, and the like. Our clients frequently ask us, what do you see happening in the industry? What do other companies of our size or in our industry do with this cutting edge issue or this important topic? And they like to benchmark against what else is happening in the workplace. And we formalized what is typically an informal feedback process that happens all the time between our lawyers and their clients, and we formalized it into an actual survey. We started surveying in 2021, continued last year in 2022, and this year marks our third year and allows us to start spotting trends in some of the survey results and feedback. And before we actually talk about what the substance of the results were, Jim, because your client services group implemented the survey process so well. Can you give our listeners just a little sense of how you did it? Sure. Thanks, bud. And as you mentioned, you know, we started doing benchmarking just because there's such a thirst, a need for information, especially in today's changing times. You know, the pandemic, as you said, and now the post-pandemic, there's still so many things that are that are in flux and changing. And so we started this year, our survey, we, we did it over a two-week period in late March and early April. We had over 1,000, almost 1,100 responses from in-house counsel and senior HR professionals in many industries. And our, the top five industries that were represented in the responses were manufacturing, technology, healthcare, financial services, and retail. And we asked employers also to kind of identify the size of their workforce and the respondents represented companies of all sizes from small employers to very large employers with more than 20,000 employees. So uh, we did that over the, as I said, over the two week period, and we've got really some great data that allows us to really see what's going on out there. Jim, why was it that you asked respondents to identify what industry their company works in 
and the size of their workforce. The reason we did that, Bud, is because we know that it makes a difference depending on industries and size of employers that the answers may be different. For example, if, if a respondent is a small restaurant chain, their responses may be a lot different than, say, a large manufacturer that has multiple plants, for example. So we wanted to provide that additional information that allows respondents to sort of slice and dice the data, and it informs us as to what uh, is happening in these various industries as well and different size employers. Jim, like any good publication, uh, let's go right to the headline then. Um, let's not bury the lead, journalists might say. Can you tell us what the top line was on the results we saw in this year's survey? Yeah, so a key question to us was, what is your most challenging labor and employment issue? Uh, and we asked them to rank from one to seven, uh, seven different issues. I'm gonna tell you what they were, based on the uh, popularity of the response. The number one answer was hiring and retention, followed by multi-state and multi-jurisdictional compliance, then leaves of absence and accommodations, then pay equity or pay transparency, then wage and hour compliance, then layoffs, reductions in force, and then uh, labor issues was number seven. A couple of interesting data points here. Number one is you know, a full 64% of respondents consider hiring and retention to be their most challenging issue, which is to me really amazing that that still remains the hottest topic for employers. Here, It's been that way for years now, and here we are again, even in a year where we're seeing you know, lots, lots of media about layoffs, uh, reductions in force. And that was our, you know, the six of of seven of the response, which I think is really interesting. And I know Jen's got some more data on, on layoffs and reduction in force. But that was interesting. Also, this year is the first year we asked about uh, pay equity and transparency. And that, was, that debuted at number four as, in terms of challenges, which I thought was very interesting. And then finally, uh, I thought the fact that uh, labor issues, union organizing was number seven on the list, considering that we are definitely seeing an uptick in, in those areas. And Jen's going to talk a little bit more about that. But that, that was sort of the, the, the top line question that, that, that we were interested in. We're going to continue to watch all those issues. But hiring and retention, folks, as, as you know, continues to be just a real difficult challenge for employers in so many industries. Well, let's pick up on the flip side of hiring and the layoff point that you referenced. We have seen a lot of popular media referencing companies um, preparing for recession that was foretold or, or experiencing it themselves and layoffs happening uh, in some pockets of, of the economy. Um, Jen, what did the survey show us about layoffs and rifts and what were your takeaways from that? Yeah, so nationally, the data would suggest that in 2022, there were about 15 million layoffs. From a regional perspective, we saw the most layoffs in the South and the Northeast had the least. And so we were curious from the respondents, have you done a layoff? Are you intending to do a layoff in 2023? The results were 24.8% of the respondents said, yes, we've either done one recently or we're intending to do one in 2023. About 40%, 42.8% said no, no layoffs, no intended layoffs. Another roughly 20% said, eh, probably not, um, but not 100% confidence. 
10% said likely, but not sure yet. And then there was another 4.5% that didn't know. What we were really interested in from a layoff perspective was, are there differences depending on the sector or the industry? And I think all of us expected to see that the answer would be yes, based on the news reports that you were alluding to, Bud. You know, a lot of the articles that you'll see on various news magazines and publications would suggest that in the technology sector, there have been a lot of layoffs. And so did the data support that? Yeah, it did. So 25% was our baseline of the responses. In technology sector, however, we had about 42.2% saying, yes, we either did a layoff or we're intending to do one in 2023. The other sort of top line industry from our responses was healthcare. This one was a little bit more of a surprise to me than technology. We had roughly 35% of our healthcare respondents saying, yeah, we did a layoff or we're intending to do one, which is a statistically significant higher percentage than our baseline. That wasn't something that I had seen from news reports and even from working with my healthcare clients. So that was a little bit surprising, but I do think it's an interesting dichotomy. The data suggests that there are a lot of layoffs. 15 million is an increase over 2021 when we're talking about layoffs. But at the same time, as Jim said, the number one issue is recruiting and retention. The job market is still pretty strong, right, bud? It really is. Um, And so many of the clients I work with in the manufacturing space are still struggling to hire. They've been understaffed since many of them, even before the pandemic. And so it wasn't a big surprise to me that um, that number one challenge that was identified out of the survey was hiring and retention. 64% of our respondents identified it as their number one challenge. But a couple of the the points that we drill down into are insightful as well. In terms of what's causing that pain point, slightly over half of all of our respondents said a lack of candidates. There just aren't enough people that we, using at least our traditional standards, say are qualified for our jobs. And that suggests to me one approach to the solution. One approach to the solution is you may need to rethink what does it mean to be qualified for the job. It was nice in the prior days to have somebody that walks in with X number of years of experience and a clean criminal background record and an associate's degree from the local community college. Those might have been nice to haves in the past, but now that the demand supply equation has uh, clearly shifted um, and employers are struggling to fill jobs, they may need to rearrange that assessment. And there are certain hurdles to your hiring process that are within your control. And you can reassess whether you want to lower that hurdle and let more people in. Sure, maybe at the risk of some of them washing out and ultimately not not making the cut, so to speak, but it seems to be time for many employers to take that chance and and spend a little more effort or money to open up the pipeline by lowering your own hurdles. And the other thing I talk to clients about is building your pipeline, thinking more creatively about reaching out into the economy generally and attracting segments of people that you hadn't affirmatively reached out to try to attract before. Sometimes this is single parents or uh, parents with young families. Maybe uh, a more creative approach to scheduling is the type of thing that can attract more folks that 
that typically would have felt excluded uh, by your job and its requirements. Maybe it means focused veterans hiring programs. Maybe it means looking at working with uh, a Department of Corrections on formerly incarcerated persons. The, the, the possibilities uh, are out there. They just take some intentionality. Another thing that was really high on the most uh, problematic challenges was the concept of multi-state challenges. So many companies have employees in, in multiple states, uh, especially now with remote work exacerbating that. So Jen, what did you see in the survey results in terms of that multi-state compliance challenge? Yeah, this is, I think, a lot of times outside counsel will talk to clients and, and want to get appreciation for an understanding of what keeps them up at night. And what we have heard, you know, the last five or 10 years is that multi-state issues are some of the biggest heartburns for in-house counsel and in-house HR. And that's because there really has been an increase in unique state-by-state -state laws that can make it challenging for employers that have operations across state borders to make sure that they're in compliance. And so from a multi-state perspective, we were curious, what are your top issues? And we've asked the same question year over year since we started the survey. This year, the number one concern for all of the respondents was wage and hour issues. 36.5% of the respondents considered that their most challenging multi-jurisdictional compliance issue right now. Number two, not a huge shock, leave of absence laws. Number three is a new entrance into the headaches that you all have, and that's pay transparency laws. Four was background checks, and then five was marijuana laws. A lot of these laws are relatively new, and that can make it even more difficult for companies to comply because there's not a whole lot of case law, jurisprudence, giving companies who are well-intentioned, want to comply, a lot of details about how to do that. And that's particularly true with the pay transparency laws. We have seen states and now some cities issue pay transparency laws really just since 2021. And now we're in a position where there are seven states or more, multiple cities who have these pay transparency laws. They're all a little bit different than one another, but generally speaking, require employers to disclose information about employee compensation, even to the employees or applicants themselves or to the public. We expect that we're going to continue to see these pay transparency laws roll out all across the country. So this is an area where we're obviously going to keep an eye on it. And we know that you are all are as well as you're trying to figure out compliance steps, bud. And I know that the um, marijuana laws multi-state challenge was fifth on the list. It was fifth on the list, but I just want to make a quick comment about that because um, where I live and work in southeastern Wisconsin, we, we see the challenge for employers because our neighbor to the south, Illinois, has um, a recreational marijuana use. Uh, it's legal. And our neighbor to the north, the upper peninsula of Michigan, um, ha has the same thing. And so um, I have employer clients in southeastern Wisconsin that may have employees that um, uh, on the weekend um, use marijuana legally uh, just south of the border in Illinois. And were they tested on um, the following Wednesday or Thursday, may still show positive, even though they would certainly argue they're not impaired um, anymore. And um, that's a challenge for what to do with that, uh, with that result in that kind of circumstance. We're still challenged to advise clients on what's going on in terms of remote work. Are people going back 
to the office, so to speak. And so we, of course, asked about that. And Jim, can you talk a little bit about um, what we heard back in the survey responses? Yeah, sure, but you know, this is such a fascinating area for all of us because the world has changed incredibly, right, since uh, 2019 when we were all in the office and it was a regular, normal thing. You guys remember those days where you got up every day and went to the office? I think, Jen, you said you still do it, huh? I still do it five okay. days a week. I'm in the uh, that's impressive. That's impressive. And, you know, I have to say, honestly, before the pandemic, I don't think I ever worked remotely and now you know you can see why there's there are a lot of efficiencies from just working remotely it's really interesting but the question you know we're watching this closely because the question is is this is this permanent is this a permanent shift it certainly looks like it is and it's really fascinating what we found was we asked um, uh, respondents on average how many days per week is your workforce working remotely and what we found was that number one response was uh, two days per week they came in at 28.3%, which was up about 3.7% from 2022. The second response was zero days per week. Second most popular response, which was 26.5% said that, that their workforce was working remotely an average of zero days per week. And that was also an increase from 2022. Other responses were less than each of those. But it shows that, you know, really, it kind of coalesces three days per week was the next most popular response at 18.2. So you can see that they're kind of all over the board, really, in terms of what people are doing. And we also recognize that uh, this is really industry specific too, right? For example, if you're uh, a nurses in, in, a, in a hospital setting are going to not be remote generally, right? And if, or if they're working putting together vehicles or something in a, or in a manufacturing plant. But in many industries, remote work is such a critical part of people's motivation for now for going with an employer or staying with an employer. Uh, people really seem to truly like remote work. And so where it's going to settle, we don't know, but we're going to continue to watch it very closely for a number of reasons. But primarily because of there's so many legal issues that are impacted by uh, remote work that uh, we need to keep an eye on, whether it's payroll tax issues or wage and hour issues and, and so on. But uh, that's what we saw. It looks like the number one response to reiterate is two days per week, followed by zero days per week, followed by three days per week. Fascinating area, and we're going to continue to watch it. And maybe even more new and cutting edge and challenging than the ongoing struggle with managing remote work is uh, the choices facing employers regarding artificial intelligence and uh, the application of technology to the workplace. And Jen, you knew that I had to go to you on this one. For our, our listeners' sake, I want to mention Jen is co-chair of our firm's technology practice group, so tends to be out uh, a step or two ahead of the cutting edge on these issues. But what did you interpret from the survey results on those topics? a couple of questions in the workplace technology space. One was, are you using artificial intelligence for recruiting and hiring purposes? The response was 20.7% said, yeah, we are, which was about a 2% increase from that same question response rate in 2022. I will say I was still surprised, even though it was an increase from last year at how low it was. And the reason for that is 
Other data that I have seen out there, including data from the EEOC, suggests that 80% of Fortune 500 companies are using AI for recruiting and hiring purposes. Huge difference in the data there. Yeah, how do you even try to reconcile that? Three reasons spring to my mind. Number one, not all of the respondents in our survey are Fortune 500 companies. So we're looking at a different sample set of data. Number two, what I have found from doing this kind of work is that oftentimes internal decision makers, legal, HR, don't necessarily know what the organization is actually using in terms of AI. And that kind of bleeds into the third reason I see that there might be skew in the data is that we don't all use the same definitions of artificial intelligence. And so I think people who were answering that question were maybe answering it from a definition or a standard that's not consistent with the really kind of broad definition of artificial intelligence as any form of technology that replaces human decision-making. And so one of the things that we're seeing right now is that artificial intelligence, automated decision-making is becoming a multi-state compliance issue with multiple jurisdictions having laws, other jurisdictions, including California, having proposed laws in this space, the EEOC's in the game, the NLRB's in the game. One thing that I think will be helpful for companies is to have a clear set of definitional guidance about what exactly this technology is, as well as different things that they can do to try to mitigate the risk of harm for employees. And so, you know, the data was 20%, but I think that the number is actually significantly higher than that. Another kind of data set that we got from the survey related to employer response to ChatGPT. We did a straw poll at the workplace strategies session where we asked folks in the room to raise their hand if you're familiar with ChatGPT. I think the vast majority of the almost 600 people that were sitting in the room raised their hand and said, yeah, we know what ChatGPT is. So then we asked, are you concerned about your employee's use of ChatGPT? And no surprise to us, the vast majority of people kept their hands up in response to that question. And I think there are some very legitimate, real concerns that organizations should grapple with when we're talking about ChatGPT, which is a form of generative AI that is available for free on the web that can produce responses to queries and prompts. It's a form of natural language processing. It's become very widely known in a very short period of time. A lot of organizations have concerns about the accuracy and the reliability of the tool, as well as individuals' use of it in a way that might compromise confidential company or client data. And so we asked in our survey, hey, you know, do you have a policy related to ChatGPT for your employees? 61% said, no, we don't. About 15% were saying, we're watching this right now and kind of trying to figure out, since it's so new, how we're going to deal with it. Um, so this is a trend that we expect to see more and more organizations try to figure out whether it's a policy or maybe even just a statement from a CEO or somebody high level in HR, laying out the organization's expectations for employees' responsible use of this kind of technology. Be interesting to see if we ask the same question again next year, what the responses look like, bud. Employers are asking the question, should we have a chat GBT policy? And one response is, an employer should have a chat GPT policy to establish guidelines for the appropriate use of the AI language model in workplace communication, promote professionalism, avoid legal and ethical issues, and protect sensitive information. And I'd like to tell you both that was um, not my answer off the top of my head. I used OpenAI chat GBT and I asked the question, should an employer have a chat GBT policy? And this is what chat 
GBT told me. But listen, sometimes the responses that you get from that tool look good, but are truly not reliable. And that's, that's one of the aspects of the concerns that organizations are grappling with. So we heard at the outset when you gave us the top line on the employer responses of main challenges, we heard your reference at kind of the end of the list to uh, labor law issues. But one thing has happened fairly recently that made labor law relevant to all employers, whether or not you have a union, and that was the Labor Board's decision in a case called McLaren, which in essence held that overbroad confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions that you might put into your severance agreements, your subtle your settlement agreements and the like, when you use those with people protected by the labor law, that is to say non-management, non-supervisory uh, workers, um, that is a violation of the federal labor law and as a violation of law is unenforceable. So we wanted to ask our survey respondents uh, how they were dealing at least initially with the results of this labor board ruling in McLaren. We were really curious from the respondents, what approach have you taken? And there's a variety of approaches that organizations have taken all across the country. So we wanted to see what it looked like and what the percentages were. What we found from the survey respondents was that 35.3% post McLaren have not modified their agreements and in fact are taking sort of a wait and see approach based on what happens with that NLRB decision. And right now, that decision is on appeal to a federal circuit court. So we will probably, unless that appeal is resolved, get some more information um, and, and see how a federal court looks at the NLRB's decision related to overbroad language and agreements. 32.3% were still discussing internally, at least at that time, what approach was best for their organization. 26.5% have post-McLaren modified their agreements in a way where they're trying to more narrowly tailor confidentiality and non-disparagement language. In McLaren, of course, the board said, look, we think the language at issue in this agreement is overbroad, but left the door open for employers to try to take a different approach and narrowly tailor their language. So about a third of our respondents said, let's try that and see if it passes muster. And then about 6%, 5.9%, they looked at their agreements, they looked at the decision, and they modified their agreements to completely remove and delete confidentiality and non-disparagement language. And I know, Bud, when we were doing the program at Workplace Strategies, you talked about the reasons why, in some instances, your clients have taken that approach. Jen, um, with some of the manufacturing clients and the separation agreements that involve lower-level workers, um, some have just reassessed the what used to be a nice to have yeah. item in the agreement non-disparagement don't go out there and say mean things about us mm -hmm. well some have reassessed it in light of the mclaren decision and the fact that we could be faced with an unfair labor practice charge and a liability to this person yeah. that we're presenting with this non-disparagement clause sure it's nice to have but sometimes it's worth reassessing now in light of the changed uh, risk rewards um, whether whether you really need that protection. Would that hourly employee, um, perhaps terminated for some form of misconduct, really be a credible speaker in the marketplace yeah. in a way that could hurt our company? And sometimes the answer is, eh, probably not so much. It was nice to have until I'm told that 
um, somebody may allege that it's illegal. I like to refer to that as a, is a juice worth the squeeze kind of decision. Um, and for our listeners, Bud is a great resource for information because he is the chair of our manufacturing practice group. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to mention one other um, a data point it, because um, it comes really out of the uh, all of the discussion after the Supreme Court's decision in the Dobbs case and the fact that um, the uh, so-called abortion pill case is back uh, up in front of the Supreme Court. So this remains an issue and employers um, who provide health plans um, have to deal with the question of uh, to what extent the health plan covers reproductive services. We asked the question, um, uh, survey respondents told us uh, that 57.3% of them do cover re reproductive health care services through their health benefit plan. 23% said they do not. Um, and then the remainder didn't know or uh, just weren't sure yet. And so um, those were really the highlights from the um, uh, the 2023 benchmarking. Um, you can count on us to uh, continue our benchmarking efforts and reporting back to employers um, the results that, that help you understand, well, what's going on out there. And for any of our listeners that uh, would like to request a copy of our um, results of the uh, survey document, Jim, can you tell them how they do that? Yeah, you could send an email. If you go to our website and just there's an inquiry form you can fill out and we can uh, respond to that. Feel free to. Thank you both. Uh, as always, it's a pleasure to talk with you and um, uh, really appreciate your insights. Nice to be with you. Likewise, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.